Hey there listeners, welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are talking about Deliverance from 1972. Directed by John Borman, written by James Dickey, based on his 1970 novel of the same name, starring John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. And in this film, four city dwellers head to the remote Appalachian wilderness for a canoe trip that takes a turn for the worst when they encounter some hostile locals. So we will discuss some background info on this movie, and then we are going to switch into spoiler mode. So if you haven't seen this film, once you hear the musical interlude, we're going to start discussing spoilers at that time. So it's a good time to duck out if you haven't seen this film. Ashwin, you've never seen this before, right? No, this is a first watch for me. How about you? Yeah, yeah, first watch. I feel like it's just kind of cultural common knowledge, the general premise of this film. Am I right? I think so. I feel like we've mentioned it on other episodes that we've done, which are kind of similar in nature, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's surely influenced the horror genre, um, even if this may not necessarily be a horror movie, which we'll talk more about, I'm sure, in the review. Yeah. And um, do you think, uh, I mean, this movie has like a lot of connections, like The Hills Have Eyes, like The Descent. Do you feel like all those films are directly tied back to this one? Yeah, yeah. The Descent... Um Huh, sure, yeah, The Descent, yeah, I never didn't think about that, but yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the, uh, what we sometimes call hillbilly horror movies kind of have their roots here. You call um, this like the OG of hillbilly yeah, horror? Yeah, I would kind of call it the OG. Yeah, and oh, so, um, so you knew like the story going into it pretty for the most part? I did, I did, um, and I don't want to spoil like a big thing that happens in this movie, even though I, I think... Most people know about it, but it, there's kind of like a quote that's repeated in this movie, and it's kind of in the common lexicon these days that basically gives away a plot point. Right, right. So I knew a lot about it, and it was actually strangely alluded to in a Tiny Toons Adventures uh, movie called How I Sum- Spent My Summer Vacation. Oh my God, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a uh, banjo playing uh, possum character. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's Yeah, dark, Buster man. and Babs get like stranded on a river. Yeah. <laughs> and there's like a dueling banjo scene or something. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Um, before we get too much further into this, Ash, I want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. So thank you, Jordan, Blake, Bjorn, Amy, Cooper, Sam, Moonmonk, Margo, Becca, and Kelly. And by this time that you hear this, hopefully we'll have a spoiler-free mini-sode posted uh, to our Patreon on Tammy and the T-Rex from 1994, which is currently streaming on Shudder. We're recording that after this, so if you don't hear it, if it's not on Patreon right now, then it will be very soon. So yeah, thanks to all of you, and, uh, and back into this. Yeah, we're not definitely not the only people to call this the uh, the OG. Carol Clover in her book uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws calls Deliverance the granddaddy of the uh, kind of hillbilly horror film. She calls it an urban noia film. Oh, okay. Yeah. Urban noia, I like that term. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some part of me is, isn't quite sure if we should be saying hillbilly, so maybe urban noia is the way to go. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That term like kind of starts to feel a little dated these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it also feels like a little, I don't know, like the, the last uh, group of people that we feel okay as a culture making fun of, mm-hmm. which yeah. I don't know if, is fair. What do you what do you think? I mean, you and I are both from like a small smaller town, I guess, in Ohio. Uh, I mean, aren't we technically? I mean, we're, I guess I always grew up thinking like we were technically hillbillies, but this is like the next level, right? Yeah, yeah. This is certainly the next level. I think we grew up in kind of a blue collar town. Akron, Ohio, is a bit blue collar, but still, not a definitely not hillbillies. Although there are definitely areas, very rural areas, close by. Yeah. Did you did you ever know a town called uh, Stowe, Ohio? Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, I, I think my school had a rivalry with theirs, and we always called them Stowbilly, so I just assumed that was like the definition of the hillbillies, anyone from Stowe, Ohio, which <laughs> is, is like a city, basically, or like a town. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, Stowe is far from far from the hillbilly we see in this movie, hillbillies. Yeah, and, and do you think like the ones that we see in this movie, or like what, what it represents, there's still like a, a significant population in the U.S. that... 
identifies with that culture. Yeah, I think that it. I've tried to. I tried to research if it was an offensive term. I mean, it's it is often used as an insult, but it's also kind of embraced by rural communities as well. Mm-hmm. And the origin of the term, I think, is Scottish and essentially just means hill fellow, oh. <laughs> uh, which you know nothing offensive about that, but. Of course, words based on how they're used historically can become offensive. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And um, and it sounds like there's a big population like centered around the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I yeah. mean, uh, it is a pretty populated area, and it's not even that. Like, even though it feels really rural, it's still much more densely populated than, say, rural areas out west. Right, right. And yeah. like the Great Plains and stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, and any, I mean, you hiked that, right? So I mean, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this firsthand. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen and met a lot of people who live more rurally than than we did, for sure, <laughs> in Akron, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so this influenced, it, you could draw the line between this and Hills Have Eyes, Texas Chainsaw, House of a Thousand Corpses. I Spit on Your Grave, which I've never seen. We should probably rip off that band-aid at some point and cover that on the podcast. Yeah, sure. Um, but yeah, so in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, she d- Deliverance is kind of a uh, a touchstone book or movie in that book because it her whole discussion on like the city versus country theme in films is kind of hinged upon Deliverance. She calls it the granddaddy of this tradition. And she says it's kind of like in fairy tales going from a village into the deep, dark forest. Sure. Like rural America now represents that deep, dark forest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she talks about it being these films have an undertone of a confrontation between the haves and the have-nots and exploiters and their victims, like the city essentially exploiting the country for its purposes which at first when i read that book i hadn't seen deliverance and i was like that seems like a stretch but boy this movie lays that theme out right right away in the beginning right yeah it's pretty obvious about that like drawing the contrast between the characters and like kind of objectifying one another but uh do you feel like it takes a strong point of view uh in terms of well you know it does kind of reduce everyone to to what you're saying like there's a, a strong divide between like the values between the the, um, the 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 rural individuals and those coming from the city, but do do you know like who like coming into this who like you're supposed to be siding with? I think it's intentionally murky. At least right. that's how these films are kind of uh, analyzed, because the city, especially in this movie, and this isn't a, a spoiler because you know it within the opening scene of the movie tells it to you. These guys are going on a canoe trip to enjoy what they call the one last fucked up river in the south. It's a river that's going to be, there's going to be a dam built on the river. So the river will be flooded by this dam. Mm -hmm. Um, And they talk right off the bat about how the city and the desire for Atlanta suburbans to have, but you know, one more air conditioner in their house is causing this complete destruction of nature. Oh yeah, um, and with that, it it's relocating these people. Um, so they don't talk about that too much in the movie. Uh, the characters don't. They 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 talk about how nature is being exploited, but they don't talk too much about how it hurts the people that live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's not hard to see that, and they're very condescending to the locals right off the bat. They are, yeah, and, and that's one thing I liked about this is it kind of made the city people uh, look like the bad guys in a way. And is is that kind of what the book you read is is saying? Yeah, yeah, I think that it, it's a mixed bag. You know, they there are bad, and that's the truth. You know, people are people. So there's there are bad rural characters in this movie, and there are bad city characters in this movie. Even right. though you're seeing the story from the point of view of the city characters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and they're supposed to be kind of you, like the viewer identifying with them. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's like a more easily to relate to than I'm sure the the other side. Yeah, and, yeah, um, I, I like that part a lot. That's that's really cool. And this is a big deal, man. The building of dams and uh, the damage that it does to the environment. And I had 
researched this a little bit and man, there's been like tens of millions of people relocated because of the building, the construction of dams. Wow, really? Yeah. It's a big issue in China right now. China's big into hydroelectric power and I've I've read a lot about how cities and villages and communities are displaced and farms are ruined and they're, they're like borderline famines because of these dams. It's it's a big deal. Sure. And the dams are there just to generate electricity for the cities? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. And and people are displaced because of like the, the land the dam takes up or like the new ways like the water's moving? Yeah. So once you build a dam, you essentially end up flooding everything behind the dam and turning what was a river valley into a giant lake. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then you reduce the water further downstream, which totally changes the habitat and the soil. So if you had a farm downstream, that farm may no longer be fertile. Mm-hmm. If you lived upstream, your house is now underwater and you're forced to move. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a big deal. Damn, that's really cool. And there's some great imagery, I think, at the end of this movie that uh, kind of captures some of that. So it's kind of a cool context to set the movie up against. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll, we will talk about that, it's specifically one of the last scenes and, and uh, how that, that foreshadowed real life as well. Mm. Um, yeah, I could go on about what Carol J. Clover says in this movie, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to take the whole time talking about that. She says, you don't give us a book? A, yeah, I'll read the book. Yeah, give us a book report. Yeah. <laughs> um, she says, to be in the country is to face the victims of one's class comforts without recourse to the police. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it like speaks not only to our reliance on city comforts, but our reliance on the ability to like submit our problems to the state or the law or the higher power. Right. That kind of reliance on that? Yeah. 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 And uh, is is there a part of that that kind of uh, trolls or, or like, yeah, talks about like the reliance of uh, city people on like nature as like a getaway or like a, an escapist kind of mentality around uh, visiting those areas? She doesn't talk about that, but that's an interesting thing to think about because tourism can also be bad for nature too, but I think largely it's better than nature being exploited. For yeah. energy or or construction of some sort, I guess. Uh, I don't. I don't know. Like, um, you know, I, th- I think about Chicago, and I mean, you lived here for a long time. Like, so many people on the weekends like go out to like parts of Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, parts of Illinois that are more rural, and it's like this whole like culture around like getting out of the city, and yeah, like drives like money into those places where maybe you're not getting uh, that without tourism. But you don't think that like takes a toll on like the local industries or. Um, occupations there or like more land is then committed to housing uh, tourists versus being used to like develop other aspects of the town yeah i'm sure it's a little bit complicated but i think generally speaking tourism like that benefits communities communities but i don't know i might be a bit ignorant on that yeah i'm I'm sure they're pros and cons yeah yeah but but yeah Um, i I, I hear like yeah like mining or like doing something like that uh like building a dam sounds a lot more destructive Right, right, because like the tourism can then motivate preservation and sure. and cordoning off areas to be, you know, no dig or no no oil or uh, coal digging or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> Can't yeah. Think of the word, but I mean, I feel like that could also be a double edged sword uh, for a lot of people who don't want like uh, that added attention or like restrictions on their own, you know, land or their own town. Yeah, fair. So it's it's tough. Yeah. Um. I was starting to think about when and why. I mean, this is this seems like a pretty big start to this theme of country folks becoming like the other, capital O. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering if it was maybe tied. I'm on my kick that I started in The Conjuring where I was trying to figure out what made the haunted house boom start again. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was wondering if maybe like the proliferation of cars and the completion of the interstate cause some of this like xenophobia of rural people because yeah until the construction of the interstate maybe it wasn't that common for city people to really drive through a rural area on their way to something else like not that they wouldn't have done that but maybe it became more common once you had like highways that pass through these areas yeah 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 and um one thing i was thinking about in support of that was like these movies are about the city meeting the country 
Mm-hmm. And that seems to happen, or one place it would happen in real life, if the, if it was based on the expansion of the interstate, would be at gas stations. Sure. And pretty much all these movies have a gas station that plays a pivotal role or has at least one pivotal scene at it. Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. There's always like a character stopping there and that's like where an interaction occurs, right? Yeah. Like Texas Chainsaw, Hills Have Eyes, um, Mm -hmm. House of a Thousand Corpses, What's-His-Face, the Captain Spaulding like runs or works at that gas station slash convenience store. Yeah, it's always like a gas station slash like diner slash convenience store, like some kind of combo thing. Yeah. It's, it's never one of those uh, KFC Taco Bell uh, mix-ups. <laughs> That'd be kind of interesting. But yeah, that, that's so interesting. It's like, yeah, you, you're on this highway and you're kind of just stopping in the middle of nowhere for, for something. And uh, that, that ends up being like the, your, your entry into the gates of hell. Yeah, right. Uh, you're talking about like the first scene in this one where they're at a gas station? Yeah, I mean, the famous dueling banjo scene happens at the at the gas station. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. And their first real interactions with any rural people. Yeah, yeah, good point. Wow, yeah, that's become such a trope. It's interesting. Yeah, I think another trope this movie may have started is rural people tending to have some sort of facial differences. Yeah, I know. I felt like that got offensive at some points. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is. Like, and, and, you know, we keep saying hillbilly horror, and we've talked about movies like this in the past, but it is essentially offensive. I mean, they it's become kind of like a satire almost i feel mm-hmm. like in modern movies like this yeah but yeah it's all based upon the premise that rural people are less just less than in general yeah yeah right exactly just just built on that idea yeah which which is uh, unfortunate um, do you, uh, I, I know we saw like Hunter Hunter and, and that was also kind of like a, I, I guess that was like even further removed and, you know, the, those individuals were living, uh, even more remotely, right? Then- yeah. And that, you know, I think this movie influenced like that hill, hillbilly horror subgenre, but also just kind of like survival horror in general. Yeah. Like that's where the descent would come into play. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt like a part of this was a little like survivalist. Uh, did you think so? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, I, I like your theory, though. That that makes a lot of sense. Uh, that like, yeah, that highways being built, more exposure to communities that maybe hadn't seen so much before. And the highways, like interstates, were like forties, fifties, sixties, right? Yeah, I think it started in the fifties. Like, at, but after, it took quite a while to complete. I think I don't think they announced it like complete until the nineties. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. It was, I mean, not that it wasn't a huge thing before then, but it was like they completed the last stretch of road that was on that initial plan or whatever. Sure. It was all like part of the New Deal or something. Yeah. 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 The, the theory makes sense. Yeah. Was um, it part of the New Deal? Boy, my, I'm going to embarrass myself <laughs> when I think about history. I know, social studies and all that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, I, th- I think you're tapping into something, and, and there has been this like uh, bigger momentum probably like in that time to move towards cities more and often, especially as like uh, transportation, even like car technology and like how, how far you could go with cars and things like that. Um, it was like steadily growing through that period. So I'm sure that all kind of adds into like this greater division of these uh, cultures, but then like this confrontation as well. Right. Right. Uh, an extremely successful film. It was the fifth highest grossing film of 1972. It had a budget of 2 million and brought in 46 million at the box office. That really amazed me. Like, if this movie came out today, would you think this would be, like, a big blockbuster hit? I don't know, man. Um, it's hard to say because there have been so many movies like this yeah. because of this, so. Well, I mean, even, like, just considering the drama, I mean, like, the, the genre it's in, it's kind of like a, a drama in a way. It's, like, a pretty slow movie, kind of sparse in terms of, like, a lot of action or anything. And, like, given the the, the budget to box office return, um, it just it doesn't seem like a, a movie like that would do this well today. It is surprising because it on its face it's an action adventure. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe that's what brought people in, but it's really more of a, a serious drama. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the vibe I got. Yeah. Um, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Director, Best Picture, and Best Editing. Yeah, I, I, and um, it got some Golden Globes for the actor too, right, John Voight? Yep. Yeah, I think five Golden Globes. I don't even remember what they all were. And it won a Grammy for Best Country Instrumental Performance for that dueling banjo scene. 
That's really cool. That that song came out like a few. It looked like fifteen years before this film, though, right? Yeah, there were some copyright issues. This was like a different rendition of that song, and oh. uh, I think they I think they got sued. Oh yeah, yeah. It sounded like they had some uh, issues there. Yeah, but that, that's cool. That's such like a classic song. Yeah, it really is. It's 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 cool. It's a it's a fun scene too. Yeah, yeah, I know. Great way to like open the film. Uh, did you realize that John Voight is Angelina Jolie's dad? That's like the only way I know him. Is <laughs> 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 that Angelina Jolie's dad? I don't think I'd ever seen him like this young though. Uh, had, had you? Yeah, when I think of John Voight, I think my first introduction to him was Anaconda. Oh yeah, <laughs> is he like one of the guides in that movie or something? I think so. I can't quite remember. It's been so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's it's crazy. He's in that. He did like the Born Identities. I think he was in some of those. Uh, he's he's had a pretty good career. Yeah, I think this helped rocket uh, Burt Reynolds to stardom too. Have you have you seen Burt Reynolds anything else? Honestly, man, I'm so familiar with Burt Reynolds, but. From Probably SNL? just from like yeah SNL. I haven't <laughs> yeah. seen him in that much else. I know. I kept I kept uh, thinking Norm Macdonald was going to point out uh, jump out <laughs> for like Celebrity <laughs> Jeopardy or something. But uh, um, yeah, yeah. It's it's hard not to think of that when you see him. Yeah, yeah. I know. Uh, but no, same for me. The first time seeing him in a film. Yeah. Um, the director here, John Borman, also directed The Exorcist Two: The Heretic, which we skipped over to cover three <laughs> yeah yeah i saw that that that's the one that's like supposed to be skippable i guess yeah 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 maybe we'll one day we'll go backwards and check that out yeah I, i'm surprised because i mean like obviously uh he's well known for this film so it, it's surprising exorcist 2 took a downward spiral yeah uh anything else background info on this before we start moving into spoiler territory uh, no, I was just impressed that uh, the actors all appeared to do their own stunts, which is, kind of feels like unheard of today. Thank you. I skipped that bullet point. It, that is unbelievable, especially when you see what's happening in this movie. Right. <laughs> and like while I was watching it, I was like, that's really John Voight. Like, how are I they know. doing this? I know. I was going to say something like, that looks so real. Like, are they in like some studio, like, like creating a, a fake river or something? But yeah. How, how do you get like four actors to do that on their own? Right, and it was also an uninsured production, so they were really taking some risks here. Yeah, yeah, that part's wild. Yeah, but but good good on them, I guess. I think I think the effects paid out. Yeah, I mean it's impressive, and it, it comes through. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, it, it's funny. I feel like in so many movies like this nowadays, with these action sequences, and even in other dramatic aspects of the film, there would have been so many more cuts and dramatic mm-hmm. music and stuff like that. But it was just like all the tension and suspense just came from watching what was happening. I know, I know. And, and that, that's just like one thing I love with like these 70s uh, older films like they they don't they like those long cuts. They uh, it's like very like real time oriented and stuff and yeah, you're right, you're not getting those like uh, really condensed scenes or like action sequences. Yeah. Yeah, that was appealing about this, for sure. Mhm. Well, anything else before I hit our Ohio connection? No, let's hear it. All right. Well, our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, connects every movie we watch to our home state of Ohio for us. When Jukebox opens in the spring, make sure to go there and check out their socially distanced patio or order food from them or wine or beer from Grubhub or Uber Eats. And Alex says Deliverance was a massive hit when it debuted in the summer of 1972. Although it was initially headlined by John Voight and Nick Ned Beatty, Burt Reynolds was actually the breakout star. It launched a massive movie run for him, which included The Longest Yard, Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, and The Cannonball Run. Reynolds' career had stalled by the early 90s, and he famously made an artistic pivot when he accepted a secondary film role as 70s porn director Jack Horner in 1997's Boogie Nights. Uh. This tonal shift undeniably revived his career, as he soon became the object of affection for many art house filmmakers and actors. One example occurred in 2006 when Parker Posey personally offered Reynolds a role in an upcoming comedy she was starring in. It is said Reynolds' interest was strong, but a conflict with another project prevented him from signing on. The part later went to Danny DeVito. This film was titled The O in Ohio, an indie comedy about a man, played by by Paul Rudd, not being able to give his wife an orgasm. The film (laughs) takes place and was primarily filmed in Cleveland, Ohio. Damn, that's awesome. (laughs) Uh, Did Danny DeVito end up uh, starring in that film? It sounds like it, yeah, although uh, I've never really heard of that film. 
I think I might have like seen part of that at one point, but yeah, it was like a super indie film. That, that, that's yeah. interesting that uh, Burt Reynolds was considered for it. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Well, here's the part where we're going to start doing some spoilers, but um, actually, I think we're going to record that half of the podcast at a later date because I've got a, a big canoe trip coming up, so maybe we can pick this up when I get back from that, Ash. Oh, sure. Yeah. Give me a call when you're back. Okay, cool. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Hey man, I'm uh, I'm back. Hey, how was your trip? It was fine. <laughs> it, it was fine. <laughs> so anything you want to elaborate on, or no? Let's just let's keep going, man. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> Not a lot of details or anything you want to talk about. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's hard to come up with a joke about this movie. Yeah, this. I know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so this film starts with a voiceover of the guys talking this four group of friends talking the first line of the movie is spoken by lewis burt reynolds character and he's like mid-discussion and says you want to talk about the vanishing wilderness and we learn they're embarking on this canoe trip to enjoy the last river in the south that isn't fucked up before a dam is built for a hydroelectric power plant that would flood a good portion of the river and turn it into a lake uh and it's very much upfront about all this it says uses the term raping the wilderness to send more power to the smug suburbs in Atlanta. And we see an explosion in the wilderness for construction of a dam. Um, I think that was really footage of the, of a dam construction in Georgia. Oh, cool. Wow. Pretty real. Yeah. So Lewis is kind of bemoaning to his buddies, the loss of nature so that city folk can be slightly more comfortable with their air conditioners. And they're all kind of like, that's an extreme reaction. Like, this is just the way the world is and they don't seem to be taking it as seriously as him mm-hmm. they um, meet up with well they encounter some locals at a gas station and ask them to like take their cars to the pickup point so they can canoe down the river and meet up with their cars and they're all kind of different in their approaches and encounters with the locals Lewis is the cockiest um, and kind of the most knowledgeable of nature and just seems like he feels kind of more at home here yeah totally and then um bobby he seems like the most city-like of all of them and he's also really openly mocking the rural characters yeah yeah he i, I thought him and lewis kind of both are kind of like uh negative towards like out, outwardly negative towards the city fo- or t- towards the country people yeah they're the most condescending yeah and then John Voight's character, Ed, he's kind of somewhere in between. Like, he's been on trips before with Lewis, so he seems fairly competent, but he's not as brash as Lewis, and he's not disrespectful, really, either, I don't think, from what I remember. And then Drew seems more kind-hearted and has a softer personality, and he's the one who starts playing guitar, and a local boy who's got a banjo up on the porch is going back and forth with him, and they just have this amazing duet type duel um and they're both really digging it and this old dude who's there starts dancing and it's just like this really great moment between them and you can really kind of feel it as a viewer yeah you really can it's interesting because like the dialogue up until this point uh between them and the rural uh individuals was like pretty tense and like yeah they're almost like objectifying them in a way uh like i think lewis or someone says like oh we got a live one here when they see one of them but then like this i feel like this this music scene like really gets them like bonded in a way which is really cool to see yeah like a human connection where it was really tense and uh Mm -hmm. rigid and even the the rural people are like the first thing they ask is if they're from the power company and they're not really excited about them being there either. Right. Yeah. So this yeah. really bridges the gap. But then uh, Drew tries to shake this kid's hand. He's like all jazzed about the, the moment they just shared. And the kid uh, shuns the handshake, turns his head away. Right. What, what, what do you think about that? Why do you think the boy refused to do that? Uh, I, you know, I, I think uh, it's kind of showing that they're just as scared of like uh, these guys are like uh, maybe like they've had bad experiences with uh, city dwellers or whatever. 
that like uh, they, they both kind of like are harvesting their own kind of feelings about one another and maybe like they're able to bond on a musical level but probably not on like a personal level yet but I, I don't know what, what did you think yeah I kind of got that impression too like this doesn't fix things between our uh, <laughs> yeah. our two cultures yeah yeah we, we'll give it a Grammy but that's about it <laughs> and I'm not gonna shake your hand at the Grammys either. Yeah, exactly. Hey, does that kid look exactly like the the young kid in uh, Malcolm in the Middle, like the youngest brother Dewey? He does look a lot like Dewey. Yeah, that's not the same actor, is it? <laughs> no. Like 20 years. Ago. This dude would have been like 45 <laughs> by the time Malcolm in the Middle came. Yeah, yeah, it was just uncanny though. The, the resemblance. Yeah, and I think he had some facial differences, and then. We also get a scene of them like peeking into a window at some point and see a character with developmental disabilities. So right. it's it's definitely beginning that trope. Maybe movies did it before this, but this, I mean, the popularity of this movie is enough to rocket this into uh, into yeah. a genre of its own. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So let's see. They they go on this trip. They Lewis kind of the whole time is kind of cocky and telling them what to do and going on his like rants and raves he says something about how like machines are gonna fail and then the system's gonna fail and then survival and he seems like really keen on you know those type of people who are not only prepared for the apocalypse but almost seem to be excited for it to happen (laughs) yeah (laughs) so they can like really show the world what they've got yeah yeah exactly (laughs) that's the impression i get from lewis yeah that's pretty accurate So their second day on this trip, Bobby and Ed are a bit ahead of Drew and Lewis, and they have an encounter. They're up onto the land. I can't remember why they, like, park their little canoe and get up on the land. I'm sure it's called parking a canoe. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) They they were probably hunting some fish. Hey, there was actually fish hunting. Did you see that part where he, like, shoots a bow and arrow at a fish? You know what? Points for you, because, yeah, he he shoots a, a fish with a bow gun, essentially, right? I, I thought it was like a bow and arrow or something, but uh, yeah, maybe a bow gun or something. Yeah, but yeah, it, yeah, it's like a bow and arrow. That's hunting fish. If there was ever uh, an example, <laughs> of what hunting fish is. Thanks, man. <laughs> You're, you got your win. I knew if I just hung in there long enough, uh, I would I would eventually prove this out that there was such a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. So, oh, and they encounter these two locals who hold them at gunpoint. And one of them rapes Bobby, and he says, he is like taunting him and says, squeal like a pig boy, which is the quote that really rests, like came out of this movie and was repeated as a like homophobic punchline for, for decades, and probably still is. Um, and the other dude says, like, he sure does got a pretty mouth. You hear that repeated. Um, yeah. There's this... Uh, a book I read called Screaming for Pleasure by S.A. Bradley. And he's got a podcast, too, that I can't remember what it's called. But he's got a quote where he says, Deliverance is given lip service as a great film about the inherent violence of human nature, but mostly it's remembered as the punchline to jokes about male-on-male rape. Damn, that's dark. So, for sure. I mean, it made its way into Tiny Toons. It's just bonkers. Yeah, I know. That's a pretty huge cultural impact there. Yeah. Uh, Lewis and Drew, whose canoe was behind, stumble upon this scene unnoticed, and Lewis is able to shoot the rapist with a bow and kill him, and the other guy gets away. And they're all super shaken up by this situation, and a big date, a big debate ensues about what to do. Do they call the authorities? Do they bury the body and get on with their trip? Lewis is kind of bullying the rest of the gang into just burying this guy and moving on, thinking like, hey, what's going to happen here with all these locals like they're not gonna think we were innocent um and bobby sides with him right off the bat because he's he basically says i don't want this getting around uh drew's adamant he's the drew's kind of the nicest and softest one not soft in a bad way but gentlest kindest heart it seems he's adamant that they got to contact the police and ed john Voigt's character is on the fence um and Drew says to him, like, think about your family. This may be the most important decision you ever make in your whole life. And I thought I was struck by this scene because, like, as we said before, I feel like a modern movie would have made this scene shorter, less nuanced, more dramatic with music and quicker cuts. 
but you're just kind of there hanging with them as they really just try to decide what to do. Yeah, I know. This is really interesting to see because you're right. Like, I, I think this is a decision we take for granted in so many other movies that, oh, you killed someone, but it was obviously self-defense, so you can uh, leave the body behind. But watching these four characters deliberate this for uh, uh, a pretty long sequence, uh, just on like going back and forth and trying to get each one on each other's side, it's kind of a, a great show of like what they're up against as well as uh, character building to show more about like them and their personality and you know what their decision process is in this. Yeah, I mean, because you know Lewis. Lewis is just kind of like in this survival game already. He's eager to be in it. Um, right, right. I think he even says at one point to Ed, who was like, this is murder. And he's like, you're right that it's murder, but you're wrong if you... I think he says to Lewis, this is murder, it's not a game. Mm-hmm. And Lewis is like, you're right that it's murder, but you're wrong if you think it's not a game. Yeah, yeah. So, his. so Lewis is just basically fucking down. Yeah, that's um, a state of mind. And and yeah, there's a lot at play here because yeah, Bobby is ashamed and he doesn't want this to become public information. And I would guess Ed might feel a little bit the same. He he was a victim of this situation as well, um, and also maybe wanting to protect his friend and and thinking maybe Lewis has got a point that if they tell the police, they may not get off so easily and even if they do this is going to like define their lives mm-hmm. right so there's there's a lot of nuance here yeah yeah there is and it, it's interesting to see them all like divided up and uh trying to figure out w- what to do here and i think this is the part for me where john Voigt kind of comes more to the center and you're kind of lining more with his decision and like you can tell each of the characters are trying to get him on their side yeah yeah he seems to be the one that you're supposed to grab onto the most as a viewer um, and that's what moves the movie forward is that he finally decides and says, let's bury this dude. Right. Um, hey, I had a question for you on, uh, that we, you know, how they portrayed the rape here. So I, I know in other movies where like one of the biggest plot, uh, points is like a, a rape happening on scene. Uh, there's generally like a lot more attention or like that, that scene is a little, a little bit more dramatized. I was really surprised in this one that, uh, you know, it was almost like kind of subtle it happens in the background kind of away from like the center focus and you don't see like 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 bobby like talking about it afterwards or they don't really address it head on afterwards so do do you feel like that was like impactful and uh like accurately covered i think they could have done that heavy with a heavier hand but i kind of like that they didn't and i think maybe because of that shame and because i'm sure everyone who came i mean Ed obviously knew what was happening. He he saw it. I think they were all just super uncomfortable. And the two, when they stumbled upon the scene, I'm sure they knew what happened. Bobby was there with his pants down. And I mean, not to get too uh, graphic here, but I'm sure there was like blood and it was very clear what had happened. So I think that it was maybe more realistic. Sure. Yeah. Especially at this point in history. To not have been like, oh my gosh, Bobby, like you were raped. Are you okay? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so I kind of liked the way they they played that. But what what about you? You think maybe there could have been more drama here and more focus on on Bobby's reaction to it all? Yeah, I, mean, I think maybe that's just being so used to like how it's covered today or more recently in movies. Uh, but I, I hear you. Like you're right. Like uh, it, it does feel more realistic the way they portrayed it, where there's like the shame around it, and you can tell he's uncomfortable afterwards. So yeah, the the lack of dramatization uh, and the real timeness of it uh, did, I think, add to your point to the the realness of of like what just happened. Yeah, and I don't think it downplays. I th- I think it f- walks a fine line there of not like brutally focusing on it, but not downplaying it either. Yeah, yeah, no, it felt like a good balance, and uh, yeah, if they had focused more in on yeah. it or tried to bring that more to the focus, I think that would have changed the type of movie it was. So it's cool. It's kind of kind of used in a way that is more uh, to set up the, the course of action that comes afterwards. For sure. So yeah, speaking of setting the course for what happens, Ed casts the uh, tie-breaking vote, and they bury this dude, and they get back in their canoes and move on, and Drew, the lone member who wanted to contact the police, becomes despondent, and he doesn't put on his life jacket, and he eventually just lets himself fall into the river. This was very... Uh, reminiscent of Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, how he lets himself fall into the pool. <laughs> oh, yeah. Same kind of facial expression. <laughs> I actually wondered if they were kind of spoofing that. Dude, that'd be uh, pretty wild if, if that's like what that's a tie <laughs> back to. That's that's dark. Uh, that makes me appreciate that mo- that moment in the movie even more. <laughs> sure. 
in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, that is. Gotcha. Yep. Um, it is a little unclear what happens here. Lewis insists that Drew has been shot from a shooter up on the cliffs because they're really all paranoid about this other guy who got away. Like, is he going to go get a posse and come back for him? Did you? How did you interpret what happened here, Ashwin? Yeah, it was it was really hard to tell. I mean, uh, I think uh, I I kind of got the impression because you don't you don't hear a gunshot or anything, and you just kind of see his facial expression kind of change, and uh, you know, like when he gets on that boat, he's kind of like in a, a state of shock or something, and he's not like listening to his uh, boatmate uh, to put on a life jacket. So I, I kind of just assumed he uh, was like in a state of shock and fell off the boat and and died. But uh, what what was your take? What do you, what do you think happened? I kind of thought he killed himself. Oh, interesting. Like, like purposefully? I thought it was a stretch, but um, you might be right in that he just was so overwhelmed that he almost kind of, like, fainted. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, like... Or just, like, lost control. Yeah. I mean, like what he just went through. But his decision to not put on a life jacket was odd, unless he was just so in his own mind that he didn't even think about it. I think so, man. I feel like the grief of, like, what they'd just done and, like, burying someone uh, just kind of had him in, like, a, a, a state of grief that... Yeah, I couldn't yeah. figure out if he was just like I can't live, I can't live my life with this secret, so I'm I'm gone. Right. I, right. I, I like the idea of him, maybe just being overwhelmed with grief and uh, losing control of himself. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely what I thought. Yep. And I kind of viewed it as Lewis thinking he got shot because Lewis's mind, Lewis, like we said, is so in the game now that he thinks it's more likely that somebody would be shot than that somebody couldn't deal with what they just did yeah yeah i know and that really fits uh, the whole like uh personality we know of lewis so far he's like kind of like this survivalist and uh he kind of thinks like that the whole thing's a video game and like people are coming after them yeah kind of like in his narrow view of the world and their situation that was the only possibility in his mind right right yeah and the river was loud so it's feasible maybe they wouldn't have heard a gunshot yeah yeah that's a really good point too yeah well, either way, when Drew falls out of this canoe, it really fucks everything up. It throws that canoe out of balance, and it causes the other one to collide with it, and they both capsize. Lewis ends up with this horrible compound fracture in his femur. We see the bone sticking out, and they end up trapped on this rot, rock outcropping in a gorge. And they're hesitant to move because Lewis has a horrible injury, and they now believe that there is a dude above them essentially waiting to pick them off. So they don't want to move out into the open during the day, and what they do is have Ed climb the cliffs to get a jump on this dude. And it, like, takes him all evening to climb this cliff. He falls asleep up there. And in the morning, he sees a guy up there with a gun. They both shoot at each other at the same time. And Ed succeeds in killing him, sends his body down to the rest of the group. And they're not quite sure if it's the guy that they let get away. Yeah. Uh I, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I understood this part because, like, they were checking to see, like, if he had teeth, and that's like how they were going to identify if he was the same guy or not. Is that your impression? Yeah, I think Ed's initial reaction was, "Oh shit, this guy has teeth," and the guy who got away didn't have teeth. Got it. And then he finds out that it's kind of like a veneer, and he actually is missing his teeth. Uh, so it's a little obscured from the viewer, I think. Even if this really is the guy, one thing that I think was damning was right before they wrap up this scene the camera lingers on the guy's hand and he's got a wedding ring on did the guy in the woods not have a wedding ring i guess the other guy who got away could have been married too but it was just like a it seemed like it was significant right right and then they they continue on they end up finding drew's body in the river and they sink it because i think a it's heavy and b it is damning evidence and they don't want the authorities to know what happened now for two reasons one they're not sure who the law will side with. And two, nobody has spoken of it directly, but they, there is this unspoken thing that they may have just killed a guy who was an innocent man. Right, right. Hey, uh, I know there's a scene where they find Drew's body and uh, they're trying to see or determine if he was actually shot or not. Uh, did, did you get a clear answer from that? Yeah, that's another nuance to it. They, they check Drew's body for a bullet wound and they find something that they believe could have been a rock, maybe was a bullet. They're not sure. Yeah, kind of confusing. There's a lot of uncertainty here. Yeah, and I really appreciate that because I feel like most movies are trying to uh, spoon feed you like what's going on, but here you're really identifying with the main characters and not knowing exactly what's happening. Right. Um, they eventually make it back to their cars. 
they all agree to, you know, get their story straight, essentially lie uh, about what happened. And the cops are super suspicious. Their story doesn't add up. And there's been a disappearance of a local man who went hunting a couple of days ago. And they feel these guys might have something to do with that. But they don't have anything to hold them on. There's no concrete evidence. So they're forced to let them go. And the sheriff's basically just like, don't ever come back. And one significant thing to the theme here is the last thing that Ed sees before leaving the town is a construction crew moving the caskets out of a cemetery to presumably be relocated to wherever the folks in this town are being relocated to, or maybe there isn't even a plan. They just, I don't know. Um, oh man, I totally missed the significance of that scene. That's Yeah. And dude, that cemetery really did get flooded by a lake when a dam was built there. Oh my God. Wow. That's pretty real. Yeah. Yeah, and they also see a, a, a tow truck hauling their church away. <laughs> yeah, right. So that, I thought that was great imagery. Yeah. Pretty cool. So it is a bit, uh, and you know, everyone they deal with when they get back is very reasonable, and it's it all, it just very much seems like had they contacted the authorities, they would have been given a fair shake. Right, yeah. You know, one of the things I was like most surprised about is like in the beginning of this film, they uh, give their cars over to two locals uh, up right, where they're starting. Right. And there's, there's this kind of dread the whole movie that they're going to get to the end of this trip and their cars are going to be gone or like they're not going to have any, uh, you know, ability to like get out of there. So it's kind of a relief when you get to the end and realize that, uh, yeah, this idea of like fear in their heads the whole time was false. Yeah, I mean, it adds to the whole like who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and it adds to their guilt i think too especially ed who seems especially haunted by what's happened here yeah yeah totally um so yeah bobby just seems relieved about it all ed ed we see a bit more uh distress and yeah i was surprised uh to, that bobby was kind of like so uh okay and like given the trauma he'd gone through but i, I guess maybe that was just him like kind of internalizing it still. yeah i think bobby is so ashamed by what happened that he just wants all of it to be forgotten and put behind him yeah yeah that makes sense um and he isn't really as i don't know i mean there's not blood on his hands like there is on ed's Right, sure. Ed killed a perhaps killed an innocent man, and really by the by the time the end of the movie happens, you're, you're pretty sure he did kill an innocent dude. Oh, you don't think that was the guy from the woods from the attack? No, I think it was the guy who was missing, the like one of the police officers' brother-in-laws or something. Interesting, um, but couldn't that have still been the same guy? Like the that guy's brother could have been the same guy from the mountains or whatever. It could have, but I'm pretty sure it was a different person. Interesting. I don't know for sure, I guess. I, I, I guess it's cool that it's ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, I guess like a lot of this movie, uh, it's, just, it's, it's kind of like not spelling it out for you, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, Ed may have gone home never really knowing. Um, one of the last things we see is him back home with his family, and he wakes from a nightmare about Drew's body floating to the top of the water. Yeah, and I think that scene is like cited as like one of the bigger influences for a lot of horror movies that come after Oh, like a hand rising to the top of the water at the end? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, I guess they, they, um, the ending of Carrie was inspired by this, wasn't it? Yeah, the ending of Carrie, uh, Friday the 13th, I think a lot of filmmakers point to this as being the, uh, inspiration for a lot of those endings. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, wow, what an influential movie. What did you think about it? <laughs> uh, yeah, man, you know, I, I was really surprised uh, going, going into this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of like hillbilly movies uh, or hillbilly horror or like the back of the woods horror. Uh, so I was, I was never really into like the Hills of Eyes or like the House of a Thousand Corpses and that kind of stuff. But uh, there's something like really brilliant about this film. Uh, I thought they did a really amazing job setting up the story here and uh, had some really interesting characters. And then uh, their ability to like tie it to some real world themes. And then the way the plot uh, moves also has kind of this real time feel to it where uh, it doesn't feel like this condensed plot line or like a forced storyline, but more like you're in this space with these characters and trying to make sense of everything they're going through and how they're going to come out of this and survive. And so I, and on top of that, I also love like just the ambiguity of like kind of not knowing exactly at the end uh, what happened here. So it just felt very real there. And uh, that's just something that you rarely see in uh, movies these days. Uh, but yeah, what, what did you think? I agree. And I think one thing that adds to that, like the real time stuff, is there's very little music in this film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good point. The music that there is is kind of like 
riffing off of that dueling banjos theme it's it's in happy moments or just moving the plot along gently moments it's not tense music playing during the rape or during the decision after the rape or during the cliff climbing it's pretty stark in the way of a soundscape yeah yeah good point like a lot of this movie does feel very silent and almost like underproduced but yeah to your point it kind of adds to the reality of of what's happening yeah, and it's still really suspenseful. I mean, they don't even really... I mean, it won the Academy Award for Best Editing. I, I'd like to watch it again and pay closer attention to the editing. It's not that the editing is ineffective, but they don't use it the way it's used in modern horror movies to give the scares an extra boost, right? Or add to the suspense, like, artificially. Sure, right, right. We're just watching what happens, but the events themselves and the ambiguity of it all just make it really suspenseful you don't really need any tricks up your sleeve yeah totally totally i, I think that just speaks to like the the characters the acting the storyline uh yeah yeah that's a pretty brilliant um and what do you think of the performances yeah i i, I love them all man I, mean, I thought these were great characters and uh seeing like john voight acting and kind of how he's like in the background in the beginning and then becomes like the main character uh, in the second half I thought was cool uh, the w- one thing that kind of bummed me out is that you know I, I loved Burt Reynolds character in the beginning and I feel like we kind of lost him uh, in the uh, you know once he got injured in the boat accident but uh, overall I thought great performances what, what did you think I agree I liked all the performances I kind of liked the switch it's kind of like it switches from Lewis as the mainish character to uh, Ed as the main character yeah and I think it's kind of like I see in this movie a little bit of a theme of what it means to be uh, a, a human in the modern white-collar-ish world, but also like a man in the modern white-collar world. Sure. Wrestling with this side of yourself. And not that all people may not have this side. Of, I don't, I'm don't. i not trying to make this a, not a boy-girl thing. <laughs> but like if you put yourself in the 70s and you put yourself there with Lewis Lewis's character chiding you like it's hard to see Ed not thinking or considering himself less of a man because of his comfortable lifestyle in the city and perhaps his ineptness or lack of competency in a setting like this yeah that's a good point isn't there a part where like Lewis is kind of like uh, drilling him on that yeah yeah like why he's like why do you go with me on these trips Ed right right um and I think that that's essentially Carol Clover brings that up in her book too. It's essentially like if it allows the viewer to go through this mind game of if it came down, if somehow the, the world came down to a showdown between the haves and the have nots, like mm-hmm. in a Darwinian game of survival, what, what would you, how would you fare? Like it's kind of a rumination on whether like the cosmopolitan man is still, quote-unquote manly enough sure right or the or the cosmopolitan person is still competent enough or in touch with the more primal aspects of life to fare well in a situation like that yeah was there uh do you feel like there's a part of ed where he's like kind of struggling with his own identity and trying to prove himself uh to lewis for some reason i don't really know uh, know if he was i mean it's 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 a movie that feels a bit more like a discussion than a um a point being made you know sure sure but it's he's certainly kind of uh, seems like the embodiment of that because he's not brashing up front and I think he in that conversation we talked about he's like I like I like my life Lewis um, so I don't know but he also feels like he's not completely un- there may be some part of him who is affected by the the goading of Lewis yeah, yeah, I like that part about Ed, and it felt like very relatable that he's this complex character. He's wrestling with these emotions about who he is and like what he represents, and uh, I wonder if that's what like they're getting to in some of those scenes. Where uh, do you, you remember the, like the, there's a scene or two where he's like trying to shoot a deer, or like when he's trying to shoot that guy, right. and he, he's just kind of uh, really like hesitant to to do it and can't like pull the 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 string or the the bow and arrow. Yeah, like he was hesitant to, uh, he was a good shot, but he was hesitant to kill a deer when the opportunity presented itself. Right, right. And then later, uh, again, he's trying to like shoot that guy on the cliff, but he's faltering a bit and like you can tell he's kind of like struggling with some anxiety or just, you know, not being really sure he has the courage. So I I could see that totally playing into that uh, idea of like, yeah, is is he the, you know, the the person he needs to be in in this like environment or, or not? 
Um, is it, do you, is that what you think they were going for there? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Just like it, it asked that question, like, can he do what's necessary when, right. when dealt the situation? Yeah. And it's kind of cool because I think the movie kind of, uh, shows his character growing to like finally be able to do that when he needs to do it at the end. Uh, right. When, right. Yeah. And I think that's another thing where the ambiguity is a movie's strength because he, he, you could call it a success. Like he's able to overcome that and do what needs to be done to save himself and his friends, but sure. he may have just killed an innocent man. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's kind of a double-edged sword. So it's a, it's a cool discussion. Yeah, I mean, this whole movie kind of feels just like a, a great uh, discussion piece, and, and that's so refreshing in like a horror and thriller movie, because I, I feel like just so many movies yeah. are focused on cramming a plot line or a narrative down your throat. Yeah, I think the only way this movie is heavy-handed and, and uh, obvious about what its point is is the um, theme about exploiting nature for the for the comforts of of mon- the modern world and and for the benefits of capitalism yeah yeah right uh, they definitely don't uh, shy away from that theme uh, yeah. at all in this movie yeah and it's an interesting thing that uh i think about a lot too it's just how much we uh not only does the city exploit other ecosystems for its own purposes like food and energy but we kind of export the consequences of our actions like if you saw your trash piled up in your backyard would you would we all make about 10% like of the trash we currently make sure yep but since this gets shipped off of our property just as humans like we can't necessarily compute the the full impact of those decisions we make right it's that whole like kind of out of sight out of mind aspect yeah yeah sure yeah and we're all pretty willing to just to just receive those comforts without really focusing on the the costs right. myself included sure <laughs> yeah and, it, and i think it also kind of hits on uh, the mentality like a lot of tourists and, and people have where they kind of go out and uh you know they're taking kind of exploiting uh areas around them and kind of like using it for their leisure and like their pleasure and uh without like too much concern for like the locals or the impact it's going to have on the people within the vicinity or uh just this kind of consumerist mentality that like a lot of people take with uh, vacationing or like exploring or adventuring that uh as you yeah can definitely have harmful impacts on like local communities yeah and i think maybe a theme of hey respect nature and what you're up against too like i don't think it's like hey don't come here ever mm-hmm. but uh maybe know know what you're doing and respect the the situation and maybe talk to locals to see if it's even a thing you can or should do because <laughs> every local that thought they talked to and told what they were doing they were like that's real stupid. Why are you yeah. doing that? <laughs> yeah, I know. They, they like, didn't care. I know, I know. They have like the sense of arrogance and stubbornness about them the whole time. Uh, it's just hard, hard to watch sometimes. Yeah. And uh, speaking of this whole city exploiting the country via a damn thing, uh, since I've told you our f- household is really into Disney's Frozen franchise and I managed to compare Carrie to Disney's Frozen in our last episode. <laughs> Right. I'm going to go ahead and compare this to Frozen 2, which also has the theme of the city exploiting the country via via the construction of a dam. Oh, really? They they have the exact same plot in that one? There's a dam? Yeah. Yeah. It's a part of the plot. Wow. That's that's incredible. Check it out, man. It's even better than the first one. Really? Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I thought I heard mixed reviews. I think it's better. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Pretty bold claim. Does it have like a let it be? Let it go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let it go. Right. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't have a song that tops that, but the songs in general as a whole are still really good. Ah, okay. Cool. Yeah. It, it does not have a let it go. <laughs> does it have a let it be? Or let it be for that matter. Oh, man. <laughs> but it does speak words of wisdom. Excellent. <laughs> All nice. right, man. Well, uh, anything else you want to talk about before we get to the zero to five rating? Uh, you know, the, the only other thing I did want to call out was just the cinematography. I, I thought they did like an amazing job uh, capturing the environment they were in, and uh, it never felt like just broad aerial shots where they were trying to force it on you. It was just kind of really nicely embedded within each shot, so I uh, appreciated that. Yeah, good point. Oh, and I forgot something I want to talk about because I'd, I'd be really interested to hear your take. Do you think this is a horror movie? I, I really think so, man. I mean, uh, this is a movie about like four people in the wilderness that are like under attack and uh, they, they are just like trying to survive and get out of there and obviously like have a rape, which is like pretty 
horrific and uh yeah just like most of the movie like you're just with them in like kind of this survivalist uh mentality which kind of reminds me of like almost some slashers where uh you're being hunted down in the woods so yeah i, I thought it was like straight up uh pretty pretty online with horror what, what about you what, what did you think i i think it is definitely worthy of us discussing on this horror podcast and i think it should be covered in any horror media but i don't really think of it as a horror movie i, I think of it as uh i don't know hmm. i'm tempted to call it a thriller sure i could see um, that and it's almost like a i don't know i feel like if you called this a horror movie i'm tempted to call like disaster movies horror movies i mean disaster movies don't have a horrible rape it's very easy to call any movie with a uh, an explicit rape scene even though this this could have been more explicit mm-hmm. um a, a horror movie yeah yeah but i hesitate to do so i i think it deserves to be in the horror discussion because of the influence it had on horror oh yeah totally um, but you, you don't think like the idea of like uh, you have like an unknown killer uh, is kind of like similar to like what we see in, in slasher films where it's like you're, you're fighting against like the unknown and, and just trying to survive like an onslaught or some kind of attack and you don't know where it's coming from? Yeah, that un, that's a good point. That, that unsureness that there might be a posse lurking in the woods coming for these guys. Um, as interesting that you say the slasher because this, this whole uh, discussion Carol J. Clover has in the Men, Women, and Chainsaws books about the city versus country theme. She says in the 80s that it then kind of moves to a slasher, like the city kids in a a camp or whatever, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. I got, I got to read that book. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You basically already read it for how much I talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess I'm not willing to def- do... Uh, of course, I'm, I'm not willing to definitively say anything much ever but i don't think i can definitively say this isn't a horror movie i didn't i didn't think of it as one yeah no i I hear where you're coming from it's it's, it blurs the lines of it yeah um i don't know if i'd call it action though like i I know i know that genre has been tagged onto it do you feel like that's accurate i kind of think so with all the river scenes and the tense standoffs and stuff like that and the the cliff climbing sure i i I think action (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I guess I actually I, I think like a lot of like hand to hand or like yeah some kind of combat or something right or, uh, or, I mean there is a lot of like gunplay kind of um with bows and arrows I guess but like that doesn't feel like the the focus it's uh, not a John or, Woo situation yeah no yeah. no it's not right right but I think of any like outdoorsy movie like this it's a bit of an action adventure. It's hard to call this an adventure because it's <laughs> such a horrible, dramatic misadventure. I, I it's like the worst kind of adventure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one definition I've heard of horror is that the difference between a horror and a thriller is that the enemy is often supernatural in some way. Which these are not. But I feel like I'm noticing a theme in, in horror movies where the enemy the villain is a human, they are sometimes dehumanized in various ways, like maybe a mask or facial differences like we see in the hillbilly horror subgenre or even just like a general creation of otherness of the villains in in these urbanoia movies, I'll call them. Sure, yeah. Right, like these, these are not depicted as human beings in the same way that our main characters are. Yeah, yeah, right. They right. are put towards the end of the movie, but um, you know, it, it hits upon some tropes and stereotypes leading up to the the rape scene. Yeah, and that's really interesting because, like, really, if you look at this movie, there are only two uh, bad apples in it. So two guys in the woods. Uh, the rest of the people who, like, to your point, uh, are kind of like like looked at as the other and like kind of dehumanized. Uh, they actually turn out to all be okay except for uh, the two here. So it's interesting that like uh, you have that fear of everyone throughout the movie, but it's just really two guys. Yeah, right. It's really two bad two bad eggs, but uh, yeah, you know. And I think that's a telling of our current situation too. You know, people are kind of people on every side of things in every location, and we tend to assume everybody is, you know, we bucket everybody together. We all do it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just like a human tendency, right, to kind of do that. Yeah, so an important movie about uh, human nature. It really is. So let's move on then. Zero to five banjo strings. What do you give this? Uh, Yeah, for for me, it's a... 
Oh man, I, I'm struggling between four and a half to five uh, banjo strings. Did you say banjo strings? Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with uh, five banjo strings, man, because there was something really unique about this movie in that like, it really left a lot open to the viewer to kind of interpret and uh, have a discussion about versus like cramming a storyline down your throat. And then just, yeah, all the acting, the production, the cinematography, the music, the pacing, everything just like hit really hard. I thought it was great. Yeah, I wrote down a 4.5 and said that Drew's decision seemed unearned. And for whatever reason, I hesitate to go full five. But then now that we've talked more about Drew's decision or whether it even was a decision and how he came to fall in the water and how the ambiguity kind of added to the film. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll stick with my 4.5 just because that was my gut reaction when I finished. But, uh, you know, maybe one day it'll change to a five. It's a great movie. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad we saw this one. So it was long overdue. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does feel important to to uh, whether or not you want to call it a horror movie or not. It certainly its influence uh, is far, far and uh, far and wide and impactful in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's pretty impressive. All right, cool. Anything else? No, I'm good. All right. Well, thanks everybody. This has been our discussion on Deliverance. We hope you enjoyed it, uh, and if you did. You can leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show. We really appreciate it. Uh, you can connect with us via the social links drop down on our website, horrormovieclub.com. There you will find the links to our Twitter and Facebook where we post what movies we're going to be doing next week. And there's a link there to our Discord server where you can come hang out with us and chat with a bunch of other cool horror movie fans. Always a great discussion going on there, so don't hesitate to pop on and chat with people. Uh, our logo is done by Amy May Popart. You can check her out on Etsy.com by searching Amy May Popart, all one word. She's got some great horror art there. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash horrormovieclub. You can also just go to horrormovieclub.com and click on the Patreon link. And until next time, if there are any lights on in your house that you're not using right now, turn those puppies off. Otherwise, that increased demand for electricity could set off a chain reaction of events that results in the worst canoe trip of your life. <laughs> That's dark. Thank you.